Good morning. Pastor Bob is really bummed out he's not here right now. He texted me last night and he said, Bob, you're not going to believe this. I'm sick. I've got like full-blown flu. He's like, but, but I'm going to try to be there. I'm going to muscle through. And I was like, Bob, stay home, sleep, get better, get well. Um, but he's really bummed he's not here. Um, I actually met Bob and Monica in the summer of 1990. I think she was pregnant with Leah at the time. Um, and in the early 90s, Monica actually had a band, and I was her keyboard player. And I was actually a little worried that Bob was going to show like an incriminating picture from that time. You know how that works, right? You think you look so cool right now. 30 years when you see the picture, you're going to be like, what was I thinking? Um, but uh, I, I got to go to Israel last year. Uh, it was fun hanging out with Bob. Had, had the best time. And um, when we came back, uh, I said, Bob, you know, I think it I would really love to teach a Calvary campus class and just kind of unfold the Jewish background of Jesus' life. And, you know, but, you know, I've known Bob for years, and I'm thinking, you know, that's like a seed that I'm planting, and maybe a year or two or three later, he'll come back and say, yeah, why don't you do that class? Well, a couple weeks later, he calls me. He's like, he's like you got the green light. I was like, what? Yeah, you could do the class. Like, this fall? Yeah, this September. So I was like, you're kidding me. It was a great idea when it was two years away, but now I got I to gotta do it now? Me and my big mouth. So um, it was uh, an amazing time, and um, I loved doing that class. This is what it was like teaching that class. You remember the story of Jesus after he raised from the dead? And he went on a walk with two guys. They took a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And the two guys didn't recognize him. They, they didn't know it was Jesus. And they said that while they were walking, that Jesus opened the scriptures to them. And he showed them everything written there about him. And those two guys said, our hearts were burning within us when he did that. And as I was opening the scriptures, and unveiling Jesus, people's faces were just beaming. You know, it was, it was just incredible to see. And you know, others have done that for me. People like Michael Card and Ray Vanderlaan, they've done that for me. So I am uh, super excited to do that for you. Question. <laughs> what do you think causes juvenile delinquency? <laughs> Why do children at a young age, start committing crimes? Could be a number of things, but what do you think it is? What would your answer be? Thank you. Thank you. All right, you're probably thinking, you know, it's the parents. If the parents don't teach their children moral values and if they don't model appropriate behaviors, that the children could become delinquents, right? That's how we would answer that. If I were to ask an Orthodox Jewish college sophomore what do you think causes juvenile delinquency? He would say something like this. If the father eats garlic and the mother chews on raw onions, don't expect the children's breath to smell nice. <laughs> now, he just said the same thing, but in a completely different way. Right? We're in the US. We live in a Western culture. We're Western thinkers. You could also call us Greek thinkers because of the way we think came to us from the ancient Greeks. And Greek thinkers like their information in definitions. 
We like outlines, point one, point two, point three. We like words that clearly and carefully explain things, right? We're Greeks. Now, Eastern thinking, on the other hand, very different. Eastern thinkers, you could also say African, or Asian, or Middle Eastern, or Hebrew. Hebrew thinkers like their information in pictures and stories. It's not enough just to have the information. You've got to see it. You've got to touch it. You've got to feel it. You've got to taste it. The Greek person says, God is good. God is holy. God is love. Good information. The Hebrew, thank you. The, the Hebrew person says, God is my rock. God is my shield. God is my shelter, my shade, my shepherd, right? And it's not just a shield, it's my shield, my shepherd. See the difference? It's not just information, it's an experience. It's a relationship. It's one thing to know in your brain, God is love. That's true. It's another thing altogether to have known God to be your shield in a battle, to have experienced his shade in a hot, hot desert, to have known him as a shelter in a storm. That's Eastern. And like it or not, most of the Bible is an Eastern book. It's not Western. Most of it. Eastern book. And the story of Jesus is a Jewish story. I believe it's a story for every single person in the whole world, but it's still a Jewish story. And I've found that when I begin to look at Jesus with Jewish eyes, and when I begin to listen to him with Jewish ears, he goes from being this two-dimensional cardboard cutout to this living, breathing person. And as he comes alive, I come alive. So let's go. Somebody tell me what that is. A manger, right. We see these at Christmas time uh, because we celebrate the birth, of, the birth of Jesus, right? Mary, when Jesus was born, swaddled him up and laid him down in the manger, right? And it's this cross-legged wooden box with hay or straw in it for the animals to eat from, right? It's a feeding trough. Little problem. That's not a manger. At least not the manger Jesus would have known. The manger Jesus would have known looks something like this. It's not made out of wood. It's carved out of rock. And it's not for hay or straw for the animals to eat from. It's for water for them to drink from. I'll show you some more pictures here. So here's the manger from another angle. Here's another one with kind of cleaner, sharper edges. Now, the only reason that guy's in the picture is so you could see the size of the manger. You could see how you could put a little baby in there. Right? And this is cool. They've got these... Um, metal outline here of a horse, right? So you could picture the horse drinking from the manger, right? There's another shot. 
So I'm standing here, you know, in Israel, and I'm looking at these mangers, and I'm like, Jesus, I can't believe your first night in this world that you made, you slept in this. I mean, I've heard of a firm mattress, but <laughs> this is ridiculous. Talk about a rock-hard mattress. And when I was born, I slept in a comfortable crib. And I'm looking at this, and I'm feeling really bad about this. And I think Jesus' reply would be something like this. Bob, it wasn't that big a deal. Besides, I was a baby. I don't even remember that. So why am I telling you this? So what? Am I telling you this so you can impress your friends? And this Christmas, when you go over their houses, you can say, you know, that nativity set, that's not a manger. That's a manger. I don't think they'll be impressed. And I don't think they'll be inviting you over next Christmas. I wouldn't. Why am I telling you this? This is Eastern. This is Jewish. God is painting a picture. God is telling a story, not with words that clearly, carefully explain, but with a picture. When Mary swaddled up her baby and laid him down in that manger, the Son of God was shouting to all of Israel and the whole world, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. This Christmas, when you break out your nativity set, look at that manger and remember, Jesus is saying, come to me and I will give you my very own spirit to drink. That's why I'm telling you this. Okay, next picture. We're gonna rewind all the way back to the time of Moses now. So God is giving Moses the law, the instructions. He's given them instructions for worship in the temple. Well, at that time, it was the tabernacle. Instructions for worship in the tabernacle, and it would eventually be replaced by the temple. And this is what God tells Moses to do. Every day, present two unblemished year-old male lambs as a regular burnt offering. Offer one lamb in the morning, and the other lamb in the afternoon. Now, some of your Bibles don't say afternoon. They say evening, twilight, dusk. It's a long story. I don't have time to explain it now. If, if you want to know, come find me and ask me later. But I think the best translation is afternoon. Josephus, the Jewish historian from Jesus' day, said that they did this at three in the afternoon. Every single day, Two, two offerings, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, seven days a week. Do you know how much time was between the time of Moses and the time of Jesus? It was something like 1,200 years. Seven days a week. Now, there were times they couldn't do this. You know, when, when, they were, when Israel was taken captive by Babylon, they couldn't do this because they weren't in Jerusalem. But other than that, every single day, twice a day for 1,200 years. Why? And be honest. You might as well be honest. God knows anyway. <laughs> be honest. For people like us, us modern, Western, civilized, 
air quote, civilized people, we look at this and it's just, it's strange. Even barbaric, right? Why all these lambs? Why all this blood? What's this all about? God is drawing a picture. He's telling a story. So, in the days of Jesus, uh, this morning offering, this evening offering, became a very elaborate ceremony, and I want to give you an idea of what it was like. So, this was the agenda in Jerusalem at the temple in Jesus' day. This is what a typical day was like. It started at the temple. It started at 9 a.m. We say 9 a.m. We got that from the Romans, the Italians. That's how they tell time. Um, the third hour is the Jewish way of saying it. Some of your Bibles will say 9 a.m. Some will say third hour. But three times a day, 9 a.m., noon, three hours later, and then 3 p.m., three hours later. Now, when it says three times of prayer, three daily prayer times, it doesn't literally mean prayer, like let us pray. When it says they went to the temple to pray, they went to worship, right? It's the whole thing. And we do the same thing, right? Sometimes when we say worship, we're talking about the whole service. The music, the giving, the teaching, right? And sometimes we talk about worship, we're just talking about the music. Like today, when you go home, you'll say, man, the worship was great, but that guest teacher, he was really lame. I don't know about that. You know, we do the same thing. So three hours of prayer, three times of prayer each day. And at nine was the morning offering, and at three was the afternoon offering. So this is a model of the temple. It's actually a model of the whole old city of Jerusalem, very much like it would have looked in Jesus' day. And uh, in the, this is in, you can see this, you can go to Israel next year, and you can go to the Israel Museum and see this. The building in the foreground is the temple, and you can see the big outer court, and then the smaller inner court, and then in the, in the center you've got the temple itself. And let me talk a little bit about the temple, zoom in on it. Inside the temple, there was the holy place, and then there was the most holy place. And the most holy place was separated from everything else by this big, huge curtain, tall and thick. And God said that his presence would be in that most holy place, his very presence. And you didn't go in there, or you were dead. Only the high priest went in there. And only once a year at Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and only with blood. Otherwise, you didn't go in there or you were dead. So the offering, the morning and evening offering didn't happen in there, it happened out in the, at the altar. So this is how the morning and afternoon offering would work. Somebody would be in the temple area and he would have a sundial, if it was sunny, or an hourglass, if it was dark and overcast, um, and he was waiting for the clock to strike nine. And when the clock struck nine, he would give the signal. And there was another guy, a priest, up at the highest point of the temple, the pinnacle, the highest point of the temple. He was standing up there with a shofar. Right? A shofar is made of a ram's horn, and it's like a trumpet. Here you could see the, the priest blowing the shofar. 
right? So clock strikes nine, the guy with the sundial gives the signal, and the priest blows the shofar. And when he blows the shofar, everybody stops, and everybody has a moment of silence. Now, the reason they're being silent is because in the temple, at the altar, there's another priest with a lamb, with a knife to his throat, and he quickly cuts the throat and the blood pours out. And the picture is, it's a picture. God, you promised somehow, someday, you would pay for my sin. Please keep your promise. Like Abraham and Isaac, right? Isaac didn't die because God provided a lamb. Like a Passover, the angel of death comes to kill the firstborn in every household. But if the angel came to a door that had the blood of an innocent lamb on it, there was already a death here, so he passes over, right? This this picture God's painting and weaving for 1,200 years. So the signal's given, the shofar blows, everybody stops. And in, on holidays like Passover, people came from all over the world to celebrate. And estimates vary, but we'll just pick one. Say it's a million people, a million people here. And they get into that, not all of them, but as many as possible get into the temple area and they're just they're in there like sardines. You literally can't fit another human being in there. And they're all silent. And the priest sheds the blood. God, you promised somehow, someday, you would pay for my sin. Please keep your promise. Now, Mark, in his gospel, tells us that something else happened on one particular Passover. Something happened at, at nine in the morning. Did you ever wonder why Mark mentions that it was nine in the morning when they crucified Jesus? At the moment that offering was happening, Jesus was being nailed to the cross. So he hangs there in excruciating torture, choking to death. And three hours go by. So now it's noon. And at noon, it's time for the second hour of prayer, right? No offering, but everybody's back at the temple and everyone's there to worship at noon. And Mark tells us something else happens at noon. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land. I don't think it was overcast. I think darkness came over the whole land. When in the history of Israel has this happened before? When has there been this unusual darkness? I mean, this is high noon. This is the brightest time of day, and it's dark. When did this happen before? Anybody? The Exodus, right? The plagues. Israel were slaves for 400 years in Egypt. And God told Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. And so God sent plagues, and one of them was this darkness 
Look at this. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another, and for three days they did not move from where they were. Yet, the Israelites had light where they lived. Imagine right now, that darkness was here, and you could feel it, and you couldn't even see the person sitting next to you. Imagine that. A million people are crammed into that temple, and it's dark. What are you thinking? What did everybody do the night before? What did Jesus and his disciples do the night before? The Passover Seder, right? And what do you do at a Passover Seder? You remember the Exodus. You remember the plagues. They were reenacting this the night before, and now they're standing there, and it's happening to them. But this time, it's not dark in Egypt, Egypt and Israel has light where they live. It's dark in Jerusalem. It's dark at the temple, at the place where God put his name. What does this mean? You're standing there. What are you thinking? I know what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, God, like, why is your wrath on us? What's Jesus thinking? Jesus is hanging there, choking to death, and it's dark. Just like the plague. He knows the plague's on him. The wrath of God is on him. Because as Paul would later say, this one who knew no sin, God made him to be sin for us. And like Isaiah said, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. If you're there, what else are you thinking? How long is it going to be dark? It's going to be three days. And what happens when the darkness lifts? What was the next plague in Egypt? What came after the darkness plague? The death of the firstborn. God said, Moses, I'm, sending, I'm coming down to Egypt tonight, and I'm going to kill the firstborn of every house. But for you... And the Israelites, I want you to take a lamb, shed its blood, put it on your doorframe. And when I come to kill the firstborn son and I see the blood, I will pass over you. So if I'm standing there, I'm thinking, when this darkness lifts, what if I'm a firstborn? <laughs> Once this darkness lifts, am I going to die? Is God going to come kill all the firstborn? This is no joke. These people have to be scared out of their minds. What's Jesus thinking? He knows what comes after the darkness lifts. He knows that the firstborn son dies. And not only is he the firstborn son of Mary, he's the firstborn son of Almighty God. And the time's come for him to die.
So he hangs there for three more hours. And then the darkness lifts. And everybody's thinking, we need to put some of the blood of this Passover lamb on these door frames. So if the angel of death comes to kill us, he'll pass over us. And the, the guy with the sundial is like, it's three o'clock. It's three o'clock. It's time for the afternoon offering. And so he gives the signal. And the guy with the shofar blows the shofar. And a million people stop. Now, you do something twice a day, seven days a week, for 1,200 years, it can get pretty old, right? Get pretty rote, pretty routine, you know? You're kind of just going through the motions after a while. Not this day. This day, a million people did this with a passion and an urgency like never before in their entire lives. And the priest takes the lamb and he cuts the throat and the blood pours out and in deafening silence, everyone's hearts are crying out, God, you promised somehow, someday, you would pay for my sin. Isaac didn't have to die. You provided a lamb for him. Our ancestors didn't die in Egypt. You passed over them. Pass over us. Please pay for my sin. Please keep your promise. Now, if you're there, do you want to be the first person to break the silence? What do you say? No one wants to say a word. And so they stand there, silent. But somebody breaks the silence. Mark tells us at three that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why? Why have you abandoned me? I think everybody heard him. Everybody. And then Mark tells us that Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Mark says a loud cry, but he doesn't tell us what he said. But John does. It's finished! What's finished? What's finished? God, you promised somehow, someday, you would pay for my sin. Please keep your promise. It's finished. It's done. Your sin, it's all paid for. All of it. And something else happens. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember that curtain 
that's keeping everybody out of the holy place, you don't, most holy place, you don't go in there or you're dead. God took that thing and he ripped it from top to bottom. You know why? Because the days of don't come in here or you're dead are over. The days of you can come this close but not any closer are over. Everything that was between you and God, he tore it all apart. He destroyed it all for you. He wants to be with you. Your father really wants to be with you. And he spared no expense. Not even his own son. For you. So you could draw close to him. You can come closer. Who can condemn you? Really, who can condemn you? Who gets to make that call? Does Satan get to make that call? He can accuse you. That's what Satan's name means, accuser. He can accuse you all day long. Does it matter? Does he, get, does he make the call? And many of his accusations are true. But if God says, it's all paid for, not guilty, who cares? Accuse me all day long. You can accuse yourself. You can condemn yourself, right? Doesn't matter. It's not good for you. But it doesn't matter. Because you don't get to make that call. God does. And the one who can condemn you <laughs> did that for you. And the one who could condemn you was condemned for you. And you know what he's doing right now? Really, do you know what Jesus is doing right now? He's praying for you. He's at the right hand of God, and he's praying for you. He's interceding for you. He's pleading your case. He's on your side. Who can condemn you? If he's on your side, <laughs> who can condemn you? Amen. Amen. God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Nobody that matters. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. Do you know what we have? Do you have any idea what we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah Yeshua. Amen.